Hype, everybody. Um, just want to point out something. The message that this song talks about um, in the bridge, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. We don't have to be afraid of death or hell because when we have, like, when we have Christ in our hearts, he gives us the strength and the love and the grace to turn away from that to hell we can go to heaven in eternity with him. We don't have to be afraid of dying because we rejoice in the fact that when we die, we go up to heaven and live eternity with Christ. So just remember that when we get in the next song.
Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, um, just to listen to your word, Lord, and your message and worship you tonight. I pray that John's message tonight as he speaks in your word, Lord, that um, it will be fruitful, fruitful um, to our hearts and our minds, Lord, and that when we leave here, we apply it to our lives and we live it out as you say that we should do. In your name I pray, amen. So um, just a reminder, after the message, um, I know a few of you did not check in, and if you didn't check in, I'm going to come after you like a dog. I'm just kidding. Um, but just a reminder, please check in. We love to know uh, if you're here, and even more than that, um, I just like to see your shining faces on my iPad. So it's super fun when I get to have pictures of you guys, and it helps me learn names if you're new and helps our leaders learn names if you're new. And so uh, please check in uh, if you get the opportunity. Um, last week, I made an announcement about uh, the Heart House in Eureka. They're doing a uh, spaghetti dinner fundraiser. And so uh, some of the businesses on here are Dollar General, Snap Fitness, Michael's, uh, Heartland Bank, Goodfield State Bank, uh, Studio G2. Shout out to Wendy. Woo woo. Hey, I get my hair cut there. Um, hey, listen, if you need your man bun cut off, Wendy is the person to talk to. Just saying. So, yes, okay. So, just on a side note, when you come in, when, when you do that, can you let me know when his appointment is? And I'll come in and take a slow mo video on my phone and, and like post it on Facebook or something. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Dosi Do, Eureka Library, Pizza Hut, Eureka Community Bank, you get the picture. You guys pass by these places all the time um, while you're driving around, while you're in the community. Uh, I would love if after Hype Tonight you would grab a flyer and just write your name next to the business that you're going to hang a flyer at. That would be super helpful. Um, this helps raise money for an amazing cause. The uh, Heart House does a lot of work with uh, single women in poverty and, and kind of working with their children. So, uh, Please sign up for that if you're willing. Announcement number two. Um, so it has typically been for the last few months, uh, I've noticed everybody's gone, and then this happens. It's about me and like three other people in the room, and there's trash on the ground, and there's stuff that has yet to get put away. And so I would love, if you enjoy coming here, um, I, I would love your help in kind of cleaning up at the end of the night. Um, I know if... If all of us pitched in something and we ended at 8.30, we'd probably be done cleaning up at like 8.32. So um, that would be amazing. I would love to see you guys kind of help and pitch in in that way. But just kind of wanted to make that announcement as well before we got started tonight. So if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 are kind of like our anchor text for the night. However, we are going to be all over the place in Scripture. So um, we have... I have Van controlling the slides tonight because I have a propensity to forget to turn the slides if the remote's in my hand because I'm getting into what I'm saying. So uh, Van will have uh, the slides up on the screen with the, with the text that we're going to be in. But, um, so Matthew 5, 31, 32 is our anchor text, but we're, like I, like I said, going to be all over the place. So um, one of the earliest memories I have in my entire life, right? Uh, this is one of the earliest memories I have. Real quick, uh, how many of you guys remember something when you were six? Raise your hand. Like, you have a memory, and you know that you were six years old. All right. What about five? Do you remember something back when you were five? All right. Four. Four, right? Yeah, you see the hands start to go down. What about three? I'm just curious. All right. Two? Seriously? 
That's awesome. Luca, what was yours? Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that true? And he was two years old? That's incredible that he remembers that. That's cool. Duke, we'll, we'll do you, and then, and then we'll. Okay, hold on. Everybody, everybody be quiet. Everybody be quiet. What happened? Say that one more time. Okay, so your sister beat you up with a monster truck. I like it. All right. Well, it will. We're going we're gonna to get into it a little bit. But, um, so one of the earliest memories I have was back in January 1999. Mm. Mm. Van, I bet it makes you feel really good that m- one of my earliest memories is in 1999. Um, <laughs> huh? I just know that Van is, the, Van is the most senior man in the room right now. I know, I know that for sure. And I respect him greatly for it. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, hey. Okay, person. All right, I like it. So one of the earliest memories I have was in January 1999. I was five years old, and my mother woke me and my brother up from sleeping really early in the morning. Um, She was crying. We went downstairs into our living room, and I saw my dad sitting there. He had been gone for a few days, and we we were really excited to see him. But something that was really interesting is, like, usually, you know, when dad came home from a business trip back then, uh, mom would be a little bit more excited, you know, we would all kind of get excited about it. And so, like, my brother and I were really excited, um, and my mom was crying. And so, as a five-year-old kid, you know, you really don't know what's going on. So, we, we came in the living room, we sat down, and uh, the next hour or so was, like, a real big blur. Like, I don't remember much from the conversation. I don't remember sp- specifics, but um, I learned a new word that day, and that word was divorce. I never heard that word before, and my parents... Um, this was the, the last day that I would ever see my parents together and married. My, uh, my parents kind of walked through with us what a divorce was going to look like. My dad was moving out, and uh, he was going to move into a, a place called the In-Town Suites. It was like a, uh, a hotel room with like a little mini kitchen and a bed and a, and a table all in the same room. And my dad lived there for the next few months. But, uh, and my mom ended up losing her house, and we moved into a trailer park, and it was a really tough a few years for us as the divorce kind of carried on. This is a really painful memory for me. Um, a lot of times when we, when we, when we have early memories uh, that are vivid, like we have, we, like your, mem- your memory, you know, you, you kind of remember some stuff, but it's not very vivid. There are certain emotions that you remember, but um, this memory is very vivid for me, and the reason why is because it was traumatic, right? Like this is, this is a very traumatic and damaging experience in my own life. And um, some of you in the room, I know there's some of you in the room who've been through conversations and had conversations like this. And if um, you haven't personally experienced a divorce in your family, you know somebody who has. And um, divorce is hard. It's very painful. And, um, we're, you know, these, these, these topics, these difficult topics like divorce that Scripture addresses very clearly are not ones that... Um, myself or the leadership team, and I hope you wouldn't want to ignore in the Bible, because as we look into these difficult topics, uh, as God's Word speaks into these things, um, it truly gives us a sense of peace, because we have God's opinion on this. 
we have what God thinks about this. We have uh, his perspective. And when we take his perspective into account, it really helps us as we approach marriage, and especially for you guys as you approach pursuing marriage. I know you guys are all, uh, you know, middle school, high school, but uh, it's a very true reality for you that um, you could be pursuing a marriage relationship either in high school or briefly outside of high school. Um, When Sarah and I started dating, it was the summer before her senior year in high school. Um, And then we got married two years after that. Two years or one year after that? Were you 2013 or 2014? When did you graduate? 13, yeah. So she graduated in 2013. We got married in 2014. So the next year, we got married. And so, um, what did you say? Uh, It's not been that long. So... uh, so marriage is a, is a very real reality, and as we look at divorce tonight, I want us to see not just divorce and what God says about divorce, but in order for us to understand what God says about divorce, we have to understand what God says about marriage, because in order for us to grasp and get our hearts around divorce and why God thinks this way, we have to see what God says about marriage, and the reason why is because God is the one who created and designed marriage. Marriage is carried out by God and is something that God has given humanity as a gift. And um, that gift is not to be abused. That gift is not to be misused. And because God has given us the gift of marriage, God sets the terms. And so we need to, we need to look at those terms tonight and we need to understand uh, what he says about marriage. So um, I would like to read Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32 before we get into it tonight. Uh, but it says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is a very, um, this is a very specific verse for Jews because they understood divorce and they kind of understood the cultural context of this time, if you remember, we're looking at six different images that Jesus, is, Jesus uses to correct common interpretation on the law, to show that the law was not something that just looked at outward behavior, but at the heart. And we looked at anger. We talked about how anger is something that is not just about outward behavior, but it is also about something going on within us. And last week, we looked at sexual temptation and lust and how um, those things, adultery is not just something that happens outside in our behavior, but it happens in our own um, hearts as we uh, desire somebody else in a sexual way that is not God-honoring and is outside of the context of a pursuit of marriage or marriage itself. And so um, that same thing is related to divorce. Divorce is, uh, Jesus' teachings on divorce is not a teaching that is about just physical behavior. Jesus' teaching on divorce is, is supposed to penetrate our hearts and get to the heart of the issue at play and how sin has hardened our hearts and caused us to pursue things like divorce. And so uh, Pastor Kevin D. Young in East Lansing, Michigan gives seven principles for divorce and remarriage that show up in scripture. And before we go into our discussion groups tonight, we're going to look at these seven perspectives uh, that scripture has, or these seven principles that scripture has on divorce. And we're going to, I'm just going to kind of explain them a little bit. And then as you go into uh, your discussion groups, you guys are going to look at um, how marriage was designed, and then after that, you're going to look at how, because of God's design of marriage, how it influences you today and why that matters to you today, uh, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, 
10% of the United States population has been divorced. That's 31.9 million people. And to put that into perspective, that is over two times the population of the entire state of Illinois. So there's a lot of people in the, in the United States that have been impacted by divorce. So you take those numbers and you project them out over the entire world. Um, the world divorce rate is very different from the United States, but the fact that there's that many divorces or people who have been in a divorce in our country, I mean, those numbers are staggering. And uh, it shows us that this is something that we need to pay attention to. And so my hope is that you don't get bored and fall asleep tonight, but that because of the weightiness of this topic that you would lean in and engage um, tonight. So the first principle is this. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman, and God has designed and intended for marriage to last a lifetime. I'm getting this from Matthew 19, 1 through 9. As we look at the subject of divorce and remarriage, we have to get our hearts around God's original design because marriage is something that is set on God's terms. He has created marriage as a gift for us, but just because this is a gift that God has given us, it doesn't mean we get to dictate and define what it is and what it means. We need to look to God's word for that. We must seek to submit ourselves under what, is God, what God says about marriage in our minds, and we must reflect God's design for marriage in our own hearts and with our lives. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus gives a little bit more details about his stance on marriage and divorce, and we're going to look at uh, that tonight, the verses on the screen. In Matthew 19, verse 1 through 9 says this, Now when Jesus had finished these things, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea behind the, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can I just divorce my wife for any reason? Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In this passage, Jesus responds to the questions of the religious leaders in the Jewish community by citing Genesis 1 and 2. He cites the scriptures. He goes back to the beginning, before sin entered the world, and how before sin entered the world, Genesis 1 and 2 reveals the context that marriage needs to happen in and the purposes for marriage. And Jesus is trying to show the teachers of the law that in order for us to understand the terms of a divorce, we have to get a correct perspective on marriage. They asked about divorce. What did Jesus start talking about? Marriage. Marriage is a sacred and holy union between one man and one woman. God designed it to be this way, and in doing so, he created a beautiful union that is supposed to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. God designed marriage with Christ in mind. God knew from eternity past that he was going to send his son as the eternal sacrifice and atonement for the sins of people. God knew that um, we would be here today talking about divorce. God knows this, and so Marriage is also this, while it is also this, this beautiful gift, right, for us to enjoy, it's also a beautiful picture 
of God's work among his people and the relationship between Christ and those who believe in Christ on this earth. And so Jesus continues to look into Genesis by reminding them of the supernatural union taking place, right? He didn't just say one man, one woman. He said something uh, very interesting about a supernatural union taking place. This union of man and women, or woman, I'm sorry, literally causes them to become one. God no longer sees them as two separate people, but one. They're no longer separate. And this joining together is supposed to last for the rest of their lives. God joined them together to one another, and no act of humanity is meant to drive them apart. This is God's design for marriage. This is beautiful commitment. But sin has broken creation and left humanity at odds with God. Sin has a dramatic effect, not just on me personally. Sin doesn't just have a dramatic effect on the world at large. But sin has also dramatically affected marriage. And this leads us to the second principle. Divorce is not always sinful. Let me say that again, because I I think we can get divorce and, and what God's word says about divorce very confusing. Divorce is not always sinful. Jesus reveals in verse 8 to the Pharisees that the hearts of humanity are hard. And the hardness of people's hearts is the reason why divorce is even a thing. The hardness of people's hearts is the reason why divorce even exists. Jesus tells them that divorce is a product of sin at work in the hearts of people. Every single divorce to ever take place on this earth is a result of sin. Why? Because before sin entered the picture, divorce never happened. However, every divorce isn't sinful. So every divorce is a product and result of living in a fallen world and living in a, 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 a place where we are plagued by sin. But every divorce is not sinful. In order to help us understand this, right, because that can kind of be confusing. Like how can every divorce have, well, how can sin have something to do with every divorce, but how can every divorce not be sinful? In order for us to see this, let's think about the Christmas story. How many of you guys are familiar with the Christmas story, Right? Okay, like, man, how are we going to weave divorce in with the Christmas story? Well, here's how we're going to do it. So in the story, we have Mary and Joseph who are engaged to one another, right? And engagement in the first century was something called betrothal. Everybody say betrothal. Say it again. It's a fun word to say, betrothal. Yes. You know what I love about having the microphone? When you tell people to say something, they say it. Betrothal? Yes, okay. So <laughs> engagement in the first century was called betrothal, and this was a legal agreement to get married. So the way this would kind of look like in our culture is um, after Sarah and I got married, um, Eric pulled us aside and had us sign something called a marriage license. How many of you guys ever heard of a marriage license before? Okay. So a betrothal was a legal agreement to get married. And so it's kind of like signing a marriage license when you propose. Why? Because divorce was required in order to end the legal agreement of betrothal. Basically, what a betrothal was is you were, you were legally married, and it set you up in society to prepare for marriage for the next year leading up into the marriage ceremony. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So legally, um, Joseph and Mary were seen as married. And this year-long period was to set them up and prepare them for marriage. And we know from the story in, uh, of Christmas that Mary was visited by a messenger of God, right? And the angel came to her and told her that she was going to miraculously become pregnant. God was going to place within her a baby named Jesus so that he could be born as a man and live life on earth in order to die for sinners. In Matthew 1, 19 through 20, we see Joseph's response 
to finding out his bride was pregnant. Remember, they're engaged. They're both virgins. None of them, they have not, they have not done the deed with each other, right? They have not consummated the marriage. And so um, Joseph finds out that his wife is pregnant, and this happens in verse 19 in chapter 1 of Matthew. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is Joseph sees that his wife is pregnant, and he assumes, right, that she was unfaithful because that's what happens when people get pregnant. So, I mean, he, he, it's not, Joseph didn't think, like, man, I bet God did this. No, he thought that his wife cheated on him or his, his bride-to-be cheated on him with another person, and she became pregnant. And so Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I want you to see something. Look at verse 19. This is God's word. This is God's perspective of the situation. He says this, and her husband Joseph being a just man. In the original language, that word for just is righteous. Joseph in righteousness resolved to divorce her quietly. What does that mean? Joseph was righteous in pursuing a divorce with her. It was not wrong of him to do so. Why? Because he thought it was due to marital unfaithfulness. And he went a step further. He didn't want to make it a public, public affair, right? He didn't want to shame her. And so not only was he righteous in, in pursuing a divorce, he was also righteous in not wanting to shame her or give her a bad name. I want you to look at how God deals with Joseph here. He, he sends an angel, and yeah, they, they stay together. But he, he tells Joseph about the baby, but God's messenger never tells Joseph that he's wrong for pursuing a divorce. Joseph is not acting in sin in pursuing a divorce. In fact, the text says he was righteous. Because of Joseph's righteousness, we see this display that though divorce, right, is a result of a sin-tainted world, pursuing a divorce is not always sinful. Look at what Jesus tells the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's our third principle. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Just like Joseph was permitted to divorce Mary, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount permits divorce on the grounds of a spouse sinning against the other sexually. Earlier we saw in Matthew 19, right, when Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees, he, he gave this example of sexual immorality as a grounds of divorce. The reason Jesus was questioned in Matthew 19 and the reason why Jesus was questioned in Matthew 5 are the same. For, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at ways that Jews in the, in the first century twisted the law, and they, they, they only saw the law as something that dictated their outward obedience, right? So you guys remember when we talked about anger and we talked about how uh, the law says do not murder, right? Do you remember this conversation? Anybody raise your hand? The law says do not murder. Thank you. Okay, sweet. So the law says do not murder, but what does Jesus say? Jesus says that if you're angry in your heart, you're committing murder already. And so he goes a step further. He goes to the heart. He goes to the motive of the action. And so why am I talking about this with divorce? Because these commands of God impact and are directly rooted in our hearts, 
Divorce is no different. In the first century, Jewish men would use the law's teachings about divorce in Deuteronomy 24 improperly. Look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It should be up on the screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, this is the law of Moses, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her to her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So, so Moses is giving permission for people to get a divorce, and, and, and the grounds here is if a husband finds indecency in her. And so the big thing men were doing in the first century is they were looking at this verse and they were twisting the idea of indecency, right? They were taking this word in the Old Testament, indecency, and using it to mean something that just pretty much, anything that upset them. So um, this indecency in the word indecency is kind of vague, right? If I say indecency to you, it could mean a plethora of things. But in the original Hebrew language, it carries with it a connotation of physical indecency through nakedness. Now, when I say physical indecency through nakedness, I think of sexual immorality, right? Which is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you guys still with me? Is this making sense to you? Okay, this is like super complicated teaching on one of the most complex issues in Scripture. So I just want to check on you, make sure that you're still with me. So the reason for the correction in the Sermon on the Mount is because the Jews were using this idea of indecency to mean things like this. I'm going to divorce my wife because she doesn't look good today. I'm going to divorce my wife because of her age. I'm going to divorce my wife because she's a poor cook. I'm going to divorce my wife because she has a poor attitude. I'm going to divorce my wife because she's being argumentative. I'm going to divorce my wife because I feel like it. You see what I'm saying? They were taking the law of Moses and they were abusing it and using it to oppress women. And Jesus Jesus ain't having it. And so he corrects them in the Sermon on the Mount. And he shows in giving this command, he goes after their heart, right? behind why they're just so willy-nilly and trying to get a divorce. These men were using the commands of God to oppress women, to fulfill their own selfish desires. They were using God's word for themselves and for their own benefit. So we see, right, that sexual immorality is a ground for divorce. Scripture gives us another exception for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Let's look at that real quick. It says this. To the married, I give this charge. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say... I, not the Lord. And basically what he means by I, not the Lord is that Jesus never explicitly stated this in his ministry, but Paul is taking principles from all of the scripture and he is giving a new teaching on divorce here. And he says this, if any brother, which means Christian, if any Christian, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, 
whether you will save your wife. We see this beautiful picture right here that marriage is a powerful way that we can not only picture the relationship between Jesus and his church, but that we can also reflect the gospel to one another. Paul explicitly states here in a marriage where there is a believer and an unbeliever that are married together, that it's literally the believer's job to represent the gospel at all times. And he even goes as far as to say at the end of this passage that the believing spouse representing the gospel, God can and will use that to save and bring the unbelieving spouse to faith. And so we see this beautiful picture of redemption happening in marriage, but we see something in verse 15 where where Paul gives this picture of an unbelieving spouse wanting to leave. And so here, this brings us to the fourth principle. So divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. We see a lot of things in this text, but the big idea I want us to see is this. God permits divorce on the ground of an unbelieving spouse deserting a believer. This is a very specific scenario, but it helps us see our responsibility as believers to represent God in the context of marriage. The Bible teaches that a believer or someone who is following Christ should not marry an unbeliever. This is a teaching that is very clear in Scripture, that we should not be unequally yoked, as um, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians, with unbelievers. Believers should not marry an unbeliever, but this does not always happen. Sometimes a believer in disobedience to Scripture marries an unbeliever, and God does not call them to divorce. Also, sometimes two people get married who are not following Jesus, right? I know people who have this story. They get married, both of them aren't Christians, and as they kind of live life together, one of them ends up getting saved. And so now you have a house where there's a, a believer in the house, somebody who's following Jesus, and somebody who's not. I'm sure we've all seen this before. This is something that's very common in our culture. And Scripture reminds us in 1 Corinthians that in either of those circumstances, no matter what it is, the believing spouse is a representative of the gospel in the life of that unbeliever, and they are called by God to pursue unity and make every effort to be at peace with their spouse and help them see the light of the gospel. For that reason, God commands them to remain married even though they are married to an unbeliever. In this situation, the only grounds we see for God permitting a divorce to happen is an unbelieving spouse walking out and deserting the family. Now, it isn't an ideal situation in in either circumstance, right? An ideal situation for a marriage is not sexual immorality, and an ideal situation for a marriage is not desertion or one spouse leaving the other. And God's word reminds us over and over again to not use divorce as the first option in handling these. That's why I've worded these very specific, that divorce is permitted, but it's not required. We, We are to be a people, right, as believers in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ in here, we are to be a people that desire to see broken relationships be restored, broken things be made new. And God's word reminds us this over and over again, that we are people who are about reconciliation, that is seeing broken things being made new. We want to see enemies become friends. We want to see broken marriages be restored. We want to see people living in and loving their sin be restored to God. We want to see these things happen. We are people who long for and operate under the desire to see reconciliation happen. But because of the hardness of the human heart, reconciliation with an unbeliever is not always possible And so God permits and allows divorce to happen in these scenarios. 
I want you to see, I'm going to beat this drum. I want you to see in both of these circumstances, sexual sin against a spouse and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Divorce is permitted, but it's not required. This isn't God's first step in trying to solve a problem. God's desire for marriage is is to remain, not separate. But divorce on these grounds isn't sinful. God in his grace allows it. When the, when the divorce is, is, is not permissible, this is the fifth principle. When, when the divorce was not permissible, any remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. This is like the most difficult truth for us to swallow when it comes to divorce. And we see it in, in the Bible over and over. We've seen it in two passages that we've looked at so far. That when a divorce was not permitted by God, Any remarriage after the divorce results in and is considered adultery. What this doesn't mean is that the second marriage, right, the marriage that that is happening, isn't actually a marriage. And the divorce wasn't actually a divorce. It doesn't illegitimize the marriage or the divorce. It's a real divorce, and it's, it's it's a real second marriage. That's the issue. According to God, who sets the standard for marriage, the covenant was never broken, Because the reason for divorce was not one that God allowed. And God sets the terms of the covenant. And so since the covenant wasn't actually broken, the marriage shouldn't have been disconnected. And since the marriage shouldn't have been disconnected, God still sees them as legally married. And so any subsequent marriage results in adultery. Since this is the truth of Scripture, you shouldn't be married to anyone other than your original spouse. And any sexual relationship with anyone other than your original spouse is considered in the eyes of God to be adultery. However, this is the the next principle. In situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is also permissible. It is not considered adultery in the eyes of God if someone who has been divorced for biblical reasons remarries. That remarriage is not sinful and that divorce is not sinful. Again, the hope of God for this person is that they would still be able to make amends with their original spouse and seek restoration for any brokenness and division still present within that previous relationship. And in that way, they would display God's grace to them. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says this regarding a believing spouse who has been deserted by someone. He says if they separate, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And what Paul means when he says that they are not enslaved is it's this this idea that they are no longer bound to the initial covenant of marriage they made with the spouse who deserted them. Since they are no longer bound by the covenant, they're free to remarry. Either way, Paul reminds us that God has called us to peace, peace with those we have have been wronged by, and peace with those that we have wronged, and we should pursue these things. You should see a common theme here. No matter the situation, we should seek to restore the relationship. No matter the situation, we should seek to restore the relationship. However, Divorce is permitted. There are clauses in Scripture, and God allows this because of how sin has affected our hearts. The last principle I wanted to share with you guys tonight is this. And I think this is, this is important for us, right? Because I can think of people in my life who very much relate to what I'm talking about. Um, my, my, I, have, I have a stepmom. My dad remarried, right? So, like, this is stuff that affects me directly. And I want you to listen to this. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. 
there's a Christian who has divorced or remarried in a way that's not permitted by God, they should remain as they are. And what I mean by that is if they're still single after the divorce, they should stay single. They should remain single or else be reconciled to their previous spouse. If they have since remarried and the grounds of that remarriage fall outside the context of remarriage according to God's word, they should not divorce. They should remain married. It makes no logical sense to break one covenant of marriage in recognizing that a past covenant of marriage had been broken. Instead, the couple should realize that the grounds of their current marriage were conceived in sin and they should together run to Jesus. They should run to Jesus and experience his grace and experience the forgiveness of the gospel and enjoy their marriage. They should pursue Christ together in their current marriage and in doing so, pursue reconciliation with those that have been harmed in any previous marriage. There are just about as many scenarios for broken relationships and marriages as there are people in the world, right? Like we could think of many broken scenarios and relationships. We can get really specific and it can be very difficult and dicey to kind of figure out how to handle those situations. We should seek wisdom found in God's word on how to address those situations and look toward people in the faith to help us walk through them, right? Because sexual immorality and desertion doesn't, doesn't, talk about every single scenario in a marriage, right? What about physical abuse? What about neglect of children? What about withholding physical intimacy from another spouse? These are all things that are very unbiblical and wrong and unjust. And the Bible doesn't directly state whether or not these are grounds for divorce. And for that reason, we must seek God's word and the wisdom of his people in these specific situations. But for us tonight, I don't want us to take this teaching lightly. But what I do want is I want us to pray, and I pray that we would take what God has showed us tonight and that we would apply it to the way we personally view marriage, okay? If you're a believer in Christ in here, you should be seeking to align all of your thinking with God's. You should desire to have what you want align with what God wants, And I hope we would reflect a desire for reconciliation that Scripture points to, that we would desire to see relationships and broken things restored again. I hope that you will consider how God views marriage and allow that to influence the way you pursue marriage either now or in the future. In in plain English, I want you to see this, and I want it to affect the way you date and pursue dating. And I'm going to make a very, very bold statement right now. If the idea of marriage isn't on the table in your dating relationship, why are you dating? What's the point? You're literally test driving a car and planning to get out of it again. Think about it. If I'm going to date somebody and get really, really close with them, and never talk about marriage. I'm literally setting myself up for a breakup later. Why? Because the only way that you don't set yourself up for a breakup later is if it ends in marriage. And that marriage lasts the rest of your life. And so my hope is is that you would see what, what, what Christ says about marriage, and it would influence the way that you date. It would influence the way that you see the opposite gender. That's my hope for us tonight. And as we go into discussion groups, I, I want us to consider how God views marriage. I want us to see this union between men and women as as a beautiful and sacred design of God. 
And if you know people who are married, right, pray for them. If you have parents that are married, pray for them. Pray for your parents' marriage. Pray that God would sustain their marriage and that they would run to Christ together. If you're in here and you're experiencing or have experience of divorce, I'm, I'm sorry. I am. Listen, I know it's hard to go through, and the pain of a divorce shows us that it's not God's intention. The fact that it's so painful shows us that this is not in God's original design. It is only a result of the sin in this world. Run to Jesus. I hope that you would have opportunities to see the redemptive power of Christ impact those situations. If you have a friend that's going through a divorce, if you, if you, if you are going through a divorce, I hope that you get to see the redemptive power of the gospel at work in that. And I pray that those involved would run to Jesus and be restored to one another and to God. And I hope that in all the mess of divorce, that you would experience the power and peace of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you've given us abundant wisdom in your word. You've given us abundant guidance. I, I, I thank you most of all that um, all of your scripture points to the gospel. It all points to Jesus. And Lord, I pray tonight as we go into our discussion groups that that would be our focus, that we wouldn't focus on specific situations and circumstances, but that we would focus on you and we would focus on the gospel and we would be reminded that you promise to restore broken things if we put our faith and our trust in you. And so tonight I pray that as we consider um, how you work in the midst of a divorce, how you work in the midst of those broken marital relationships, that we would consider your grace and your mercy and your peace and your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what we're gonna do this week before you guys move around, um, I'm gonna hand these to uh, your leader. If you would get into the same groups that we were in last week, right? So if you're in middle school and you're a girl, you're gonna be back here. Mid high, middle school guys are gonna be over here. High school guys over there. High school girls over here. Leaders, same groups you were in last week. If you, have a, if you have a question or you weren't here last week, you're more than welcome to come talk to me. But get in your groups, circle up. I'll bring around a paper with the questions and we'll get started. <laughs>